an almost universal call to prayer took place, didn't it, on Friday afternoon. From anybody and everybody that you uh, could have turned on a radio or a television to hear, uh, this, this heart's cry to prayer went out. But that heart's cry to prayer then always raises questions for us. To whom should I pray? And what should I pray? I, I know I want to pray because there doesn't seem to be anything else I can do but pray. But eventually that, that internal yearning, that internal heart's cry wrestles with the mind to say, who am I praying to? What is this person like? And, and what is it that I'm praying for? Our own community it, is only 15 months since on a normal Sunday morning at about 11 o'clock, a massacre took place just within two miles of where we are right now. And in some ways, that feels like a, a really long time ago that a 53-year-old man with his heart set on violence, went after other people. But it was only about 15 months ago. And then on Friday, as I am assuming that all of you have heard by now, a 20-year-old set on violence when just did what was for many of us unthinkable. And, and it, it brings to us the, what Paul said in Romans when he said to us to not be overcome by evil. Because one of the the first reactions or responses we have when we hear about such things is a weight, a heaviness. I don't know if you were like me, but you just, you didn't feel like doing anything. Like everything you were doing was not as important or as critical as you thought it was. You know, you started your day with, you know, I got to get all these things done by five o'clock on Friday. When I left for home for lunch break uh, around 11.30, the news was reporting, uh, you know, a shooting took place, one adult, one child. Came back from lunch and the story was just completely different. And you, just, you feel this weight, this... The, the pressure that comes upon it. And so Paul says, do not be overcome by it because it can weigh on you. It will bring pressure on you, on, on your heart, on your faith, on your soul, on those that are especially immediately dealing with it, those that are very directly affected not by it, not just people several states away hearing about it. If it can weigh you down just hearing about it, how much can it weigh you down when you are the person most directly affected by it? And it does weigh us down. And it can overcome us. And so Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but choose to overcome evil with good. Choose, as we sang today, to believe that there is something more powerful than sin. There is something more powerful than death. There is something more powerful than evil that can overcome it. Because if there isn't, then we are overcome.
If there isn't, we are overcome. And so we turn today to Hebrews chapter 11, where we get a description of what it means to live by faith. How it is that faith is to affect us and is to impact us, not just when it's surprisingly 55 degrees on a December 16th day and you're like, really, that's cool. Of course I believe in good things and a God that's out there, but a faith that we express even in the midst of horrible and awful circumstances. So it is a short statement that we put in the handout, but I do want to bring it to your attention that there is still more information that's coming out, but no information that does come out will ultimately change or alter the evil and demonic nature of what took place. And we can say that clearly. It was evil, it was demonic, it was wrong, it was against God's will. We can say that unapologetically. And so when we then say to pray, we are praying to someone who declares that evil and demonic and who is going to do something about it. So what is faith? What does it mean to live by faith? Not only in the good times, but also in the bad. You'll find Hebrews 11 on page 1007 if you're using one of these pew Bibles. We're going to read it in its entirety. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, 
as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's turn again to prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and in very fresh and real ways, 
can affirm much of what we have read, that there has to be something better than this. There has to be a world that's better than this one. There has to be a city that is stronger, a place that is safer, where reality and relationships are purer. Father, we pray that as we are open to what your word would say to us, we ask you to convict our hearts, to, to give us just even a glimpse of a vision of what you do have in a better world, in a better place that is available to each and to every one of us. And that the, the wonder of that reality would shape and affect how we live in the place that you have us here and now. In your son's name we pray, amen. Our chapter helps us by telling us right up front what faith is. Then it tells us three things that we can do by faith. And that's just sort of going to be the, the general outline of, of our time today. What is faith? And then if this is what it is, what, what is it that you and I can do by faith? And it says right from the beginning that faith is the conviction of things not seen. We see this in verses 1 through 3. There is always more than meets the eye. It's the the first thing that the writer wants to say to us. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. There is more out there than what you and I can see. Right now, as I'm looking at you, as you're looking at me, you're looking up to the screen, there's more than just what you and I can see. I can't look at you and see how much you love other people. I can't. It's one of the most significant things about you. But I I, I can't see that. And if we were to bring a nurse or a doctor in to say, well, let's just check the metrics. Let's check the blood pressure. Let's, Let's check the sugar levels. Let's check the heart rate. None of that information would tell us who here is just overflowing with love and compassion for other people we might be able to gauge stress levels a little bit. But even that, there's ways that we can look calm and and underneath there's just a storm that's raging from bitterness, from anger, maybe from fear. But it's something that I can't see when you look at me and and you you can't see when, when you look this way. But it's a reality that's there. And that's one of the things that each of us dealt with in, in receiving news of, of a tragedy, of harm, that there's something there that's, that's worse than just somebody dying. We all have this sense that we're all going to go at some point in time. But then this is, this is worse. There is something there, and it's real. I, I can't show it to you, but I can feel the, the wrongness of it. it it's not right. 
because there's always more than what we can see. And the, the writer goes so far as to say, actually, everything that we can see, what is visible, comes from what is invisible. So not only are there, there there's what's visible and what's invisible, but actually what is invisible is, is deeper, it's stronger, it actually is from which we get the visible. And we can know that when we look at ourselves and say that there has to be something greater. I, we can't just go backwards in time and, and I came from another person who came from another person who came from another person because when we see what we're capable of as human beings and how many times we get it wrong, there has to be something more sturdy, more sure from which this comes. Otherwise, we would have found ways time and again to destroy ourselves, to get us off course, and to mess this up. And even when I look at the world and I see how it functions, there's gotta be something behind it that, that keeps it going. I mean, think about it right now. Every one of us, as you're sitting here, again, this is something you can't feel, but from everything we can tell by how we measure things, all of us right now are doing two things. We are suspended and we are spinning. We are suspended in space and as an entire planet circling around other planets at amazing speeds, can you feel that? I can't feel it. And not only are we spinning all the way around other planets, as a planet, we're spinning. Can you feel it? You can't. But it's true. Each and every one of us, right now, we are suspended and we are spinning. Why don't we feel it? What's the, what's the G word? Gravity. Gravity is the reason we don't feel it. We're, we're stuck to where we are. And so we don't feel the spinning. So that's a description. Gravity is the reason we don't feel it. Here's the question. What does gravity care? Think about it. Think about it. If gravity worked 99% of your life, which would be pretty good, right? I mean, we'd be excited for most things that are effective 99% of the time. But if gravity only worked 99% of your life, the day you hit 100, you're gone. When it kicks back in the next day, it, it, it won't bring you back. These are realities that are out there that aren't even necessarily spiritual, but we, there are invisible things that give purpose and meaning and structure to what we have that is visible. So faith is that conviction. It's just being willing to acknowledge that and say that. I, I do believe there is more than meets the eye. Faith, and, and so when we challenge you and call you as a church to have faith in God, we're not actually asking you to go from a position of not having any faith to having faith. We all have it. We're just now presenting to you the God who made the world and how it works and who brought his son into the world to redeem the world and saying, have faith in him. But all of us are affected by things we can't see. And we all behave in such a way that says we trust those things to keep on working. We trust and believe that the sun will come up tomorrow. When there is zero reason, it has to. We just believe it will. And so we're making plans for tomorrow. And we're making plans for the next day. We're operating on faith. We are convicted that things that we can't see will take place and we are behaving accordingly. And what 
the Bible says is having faith in God is it's specifying that faith. It's making it more clear and more concrete in a person and saying this is the, who we're going to have faith in. But that's what all of us are actually dealing with. It's not whether we're going to have faith or not. It's who do you have faith in and why do you have faith in that? Then the writer goes on to tell us in this sweeping summary of the first 40 books of the Bible what faith is. And the first point that he makes is that it's by faith that we draw near to God in verses four through seven. Looking specifically at verse six, he says, without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it is by faith, this conviction that though we can't see him, though he is invisible to us, there must be a God out there. And if, if that's all we believe, that he's out there, we're still not gonna get to the point of drawing near to him. Because we could believe that he's out there, but he's out there and he's so far out there, we don't have access to him. So if we're gonna draw near to him by faith, there has to be this conviction in our own minds and in our own hearts that not only is he there, but we can, when we close our eyes, bow our knees, however it is that we pray when this universal call to prayer goes out, that what we say in our mind and what we say with our lips, somebody can hear. They can hear those things. And when we believe that, then we will draw near to him instead of run away from him. We will draw near by faith in him if we believe that he exists and that he is available to those who are seeking him. That any person, wherever they are right now, if in their heart's desire is to know him and to seek him, God is available and accessible to them. That's the God that we are encouraging you to pray to and to draw near to that he is available and accessible to any who seek him and who are willing to draw near to him and that he rewards them. Now the rest of the chapter helps us to, to make sure we understand rightly what rewards them means because many of us have the false expectation that if we seek God and if we're obedient to him and if we have faith in him, then life is gonna go great, that nothing difficult will ever happen to us that nobody else's sin will ever spill over and affect us or affect our children. But you can't read the whole chapter and come to that conclusion. It says he will reward those who seek him. But that reward has to mean something other than total security in this life and total safety in this life. Because he gives example after example within the chapter of how that doesn't happen. How rewards does not mean or guarantee absolute security or absolute safety in the here and now. But it means something. So what does it mean? That he rewards those who seek him. That's what the rest of this chapter helps us to walk through. But it is by faith that we draw near to God. So faith gets us to God. We do not have faith in faith. The issue is not necessarily how big or how small your faith is, it's who do you have faith in? You could have a small amount of faith, but if it's in the real and living God, 
you're in great shape. You can have a big faith in a false God. It doesn't matter how big your faith is. If he can't actually hear you and he can't actually help you and reward you for seeking him, it doesn't matter how large your faith is if it's not in the right person or the right thing. So the next thing that he says, it is by faith that we have hope in the future. If you look at verse eight, he says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So what is it that Abraham did by faith? He heard God, heard the call on his life, and not knowing exactly what it mean or exactly where he would go, because he trusted God, he did what God said. Just a great way to paraphrase faith. Trusting obedience. I, I can't say I have faith in him and then not do what he tells me to do. If I'm not doing it, then I'm not believing him. I don't yet quite trust him. I mean, he said, go over here. Yeah, I'd like a little more evidence. I'd like a little more proof. I'm not sure that that's where I'm supposed to go. I'm not sure that that's what I'm supposed to do. Abraham, when it says that he had faith and that by faith, he went out to a place not knowing where he was going, we could just paraphrase and say he had trust in God and so he did what God said. God didn't tell him everything, but what he knew He believed in, he trusted, he acted upon, and so he went out to a place that he did not know. Now, here's the reality in that, is that for most of us, that is how the future plays itself out. We do not know what is going to happen tomorrow. We don't. Now, we don't know that no matter what we believe But God has designed it that we are limited in our capacities. We can sense that some things are coming and some of you are more sensory than others and you can get a gut feeling at the beginning of a day and just, I'm not, just, mm, I had a bad dream last night. I'm not sure, but you can't specify it. Life has uncertainties for each and every one of us. And sometimes we think, well, if I, if I pray to God and I seek his will and I seek his face, then he'll tell me everything that's going to happen. And again, that's an expectation that we've created, but we can't get that from reading the Bible. He says he'll give us as much information as we need on a need-to-know basis. That's what he'll provide. Now, there, there's something in us, I know I experienced this, that if I could just say, you know, God would tell me right now what the next five years of my life should look like, do I even think I would obey him if he told me what it should look like? I don't think I would obey him perfectly if he said, yes, look, in three months do this, in nine months do this, and it's arrogant of me to think if I just knew it, I would do it. Well, he tells me a bunch of other things to do that I don't do, so why would I assume that if he just told me that, that all of a sudden I'd become you know, perfectly obedient and I would do everything he was asking me to do. We aren't perfect. We don't always obey the things he says to do. And so 
He has designed it that we follow him and we trust in him, that he gives us enough information to keep on going, not entirely sure what the, what the immediate next steps will be. And so that's one of the things that the Bible says very frankly to each and every one of us. We can't come here and get this you know, guarantee of what's gonna happen in this situation or to this person. or to the, it, it, it does not create those expectations in us. It's honest about the type of world we live in and that there is an enemy in our world that roars and roams like a lion seeking to get people to disobey God, to wander away from God, to not seek God. And so we should expect that as we live in this world, we will experience all the difficulty, all the struggle that comes from our own sinful hearts and the sinful realities of other people. The Bible was one of the few places that will tell us that straight up. And it won't sugarcoat it. I can... So three weeks ago, today I was in a hospital room and just trying to get a sense of what the world was like to somebody who just spent nine months enclosed in a womb, you know, and how drastic now life is outside of that. And, and where in City Hospital, we were on the third floor looking out and you can actually see quite a nice landscape of Akron and just like holding a person to the window and saying, this is the world, Look, you can't focus on anything, but there it is. And it's a broken world. And it's where we have to be until God takes us to a better world. There's not really much else. It's, I can't, oh, it's gonna be perfect and it's gonna be great and nothing bad's ever gonna happen and no, and you can kind of see it. Like, look, everything looks dead right now as you look out on the landscape of every tree you're observing. It's not all bright. It's not all beautiful. It's not all perfect. And it brings with it tremendous uncertainty. But not only is there uncertainty in life, there's uncertainty in the question of life after death. I mean, if we can't figure out tomorrow, we're, we're not going to be very great at figuring out what happens once we're dead. So go to verse 19. This is what he says now about Abraham. So Abraham had the kind of faith that trusted God with all the uncertainties of this life. Abraham also had the kind of faith that trusted in God with all the uncertainties of life after death. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is, I'm not gonna go into the details of this story in Abraham's life. But our summary statement here in Hebrews 11 is that Abraham was willing to obey and willing to trust and act upon what God was telling him because he had learned up to this point, if I can trust God with all of the uncertainties that this world brings, I can also trust him with all the uncertainties and all the questions I have about the next. And I believe that if he was able to create this world, he can recreate this world. I believe that if he can make life and create life, then when life is taken, he can still do something. I can't do something. You can't do something. But we didn't do anything to be here in the first place. By the, by the time we were making any decisions, we were already here. 
he can do something. He is not limited either by our attitudes in our life or even in our deaths. And this is what Abraham believed. That God, that death for God was not final. It was not limiting to him that he could do something, that he could bring back from the dead, that he could create something totally new, something totally better. And so this is by faith how we have hope in the future. And when we really believe this, because we have to settle this, each and every one of us do, for us to move forward with any sense of health, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in our days, with all the uncertainties of life, we have to wrestle with the questions of what happens after life. What do we say? What do we believe is next? Again, you'll hear almost universal pleas of something being better on the other side. What other side? And what's better? How is it better? How is it different than what we're experiencing now? And when we settle in faith, in the conviction that because of everything we see, there is good evidence to believe that there is a powerful God who can do more than we can see, who can make something better than what we have. That gives us freedom in the present. And so by faith, we then have freedom to live in the present. And this is the rest of the chapters. They give all of the examples. But I want to highlight in verse 26 the example of Moses. Moses was someone who believed and trusted God for all of the uncertainties of this life and next. And so just this amazingly profound statement in verse 26 about him. It says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In terms of earthly reward, you couldn't have asked for a better situation than to be in Pharaoh's house. Moses had access to the pinnacle of the world's wealth in his day. He was raised inside of the palace of the most powerful leader. And in his adult life, chose not to take advantage of that, not to just enjoy it and live it up, but because he really believed that there's a reality greater than whatever this world has to offer. It says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth the shame, the the despising, the mockery, the suffering that comes from following Christ, he considered that greater than all the wealth of Egypt. And that's something that it should be clear to us in times of tragedy, in times of harm, that when sin really in all of its fullness is unleashed, It does not discriminate based on your background or your financial status or anything that you or I can accumulate in this world. There aren't enough laws that we can pass. There aren't enough locks that we can put on doors. There aren't. And when we see that, that 
visibly. We can't. You can't live in a small enough community to not be affected by sin. Then why do we spend so much time trying to acquire those things as if they will bring us security and safety and become our savior? That really what we do want is to acquire those things, to have them, because we do believe by faith that they will protect us, secure us. And when we come by faith instead to believe that what is invisible is greater than what is visible, that everything, even the best this world has to offer is fleeting and passing and will ultimately not last then we would be people characterized by a freedom from those things. Not that we never use them, not that we never enjoy them, but they don't define us. Okay, so look at that. You got this. That when you get to heaven, that's gonna be like talking about the first bike you got, the tricycle that you were riding around in that was passed down from four different families. I mean, great, enjoy it, but enjoy it in perspective. Other people might congratulate you, other people might high-five you and say, ooh, wow. But God is saying to us that there is something so much greater and so much better that we can actually be free from those things. They don't have to define how we make decisions. And how do we know that? Well, if we look through the rest of the chapter, we see that there's a very mixed response because of people's faith in God. Some people received greater things on this earth. They received promotions in their work. They were successful at what they did. It says, look, by faith, people were able to conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouth of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. So those are people that you're looking around, you're like, wow, they are enjoying the fruit of this earth. And it was because of their faith. But then it says, people, by the very same faith, were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Verse 37, they were killed with a sword and they walked around destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. So we can't look at what someone has achieved or acquired in their life and measure their faith by it. Some people by faith have conquered kingdoms and other people feel destitute and afflicted. But the reality is if their faith is genuine in God, what awaits both of them is a world so much richer, greater, and better than what either of them have experienced in the here and now. By faith, all of them, even though they've experienced varying consequences of their faith will have one reality, one hope, one future, and it's a future with God in a city that he has made. But I do think there's an intentional reason that it's in verse 38 that the writer puts the phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. He could have inserted that at almost any point. I mean, we would say about every person that they're made in the image of God, that they're valuable. But it's after he describes those 
who have suffered the worst and suffered the most, that he inserts this phrase, those of whom the world was not worthy. And that's another thing that we can believe by faith. That life has created varying realities for us. I mean, I didn't choose to be born in the home that I was born in. To be loved and blessed, nurtured and nourished. If I were to put my experience in my 30 years of life and say, oh my goodness, I've been spoiled rotten. I really have. If I found something to complain about, it would only reveal to you how spoiled, in fact, I've been. And I believe, therefore, one of the things that the Bible says is that while heaven is something that is available to everyone, by faith, in Jesus Christ, it will be a reality that is experienced differently. It will be enjoyed by all, but enjoyed in different ways. And maybe those who have suffered the most and who have gone through the worst will actually enjoy heaven the most. I mean, I'm fine saying that. In all that I've received, in all that I've been blessed with, that if somebody who has gone through horrors that I can't fathom, where it does almost overcome you, that God would, in allowing that to happen, allow it because he knows that there is something else he's gonna do, proportional and better, for all those who've experienced that kind of horror. And so he says here, those of whom the world was not worthy. And he says that in relation to those who have suffered the most. The Bible describes heaven as a place where there will be so many people that you won't be able to count them, that from every time and every, trunk, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, people will be around the throne, they'll be worshiping and they'll be praising God. And when we look around as adults and we say, I don't see the majority of people worshiping God. I don't see the majority of people serving him and honoring him. So how, how do I look out and see this and believe that there's gonna be this future reality where there will be so many people worshiping him and praising him. And it's one of the things that the Bible says of us, of our God, that no one is punished and no one is sent to hell for being born. People go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. That when the light comes and they reject the light, that there is a consequence to that rejection. But every person in this world who does not make it into adulthood, who does not experience the light in which they then make a decision, is said by Jesus among his disciples as they're dealing with children, he says to them, don't forbid them to come for theirs belongs the kingdom of heaven. And that he does have a future reality, a future hope of all of those of whom the world is not worthy. 
This is the God that we pray to. This is the one that we're called to have faith in. That when horrible things happen, when sin is unleashed, and we say pray, pray to who? Pray to him who is making a better world, who does know absolutely what's going on, who can see inside your heart and mind and know whether there's bitterness or whether there's love, whether there's justice or whether there's anger, and that all of us will one day stand before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for who you are that we can come to you not only in times of celebration, in times where everything is going great and we just feel overwhelmed with thanks, but that we can come to you in times of sorrow. We can come to you when we are puzzled. We can come to you when we feel overwhelmed and overcome by the sinfulness of our own hearts and of our own world. And we, we, we do pray, Father, that you would help us by faith to draw near to you, to trust you with the future, and to experience the freedom that you give to us in the present, to be your sons and daughters, to tell other people about you and to tell them and show them that there is a better world and a better reality than what we experience here and now. And so we sing your praises. And in so doing, we declare our faith that we trust you. We trust in what you're doing. And we trust in where you're leading us. Amen.